What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Hi, this is Jason Greenblatt on The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. Today I'm speaking with Ari Fleischer. Ari served as the press secretary for President George W. Bush from January 2001 to July 2003. We had a chance to catch up on Afghanistan, Iran, his thoughts on September 11th, fake news, and so many other topics. It was a real pleasure to have him as a guest. I hope you enjoy The Diplomat on Newsweek. The interviews on this episode were recorded prior to the Kabul airport attack, which took place on Thursday, August 26th. Ari, you grew up on the Upper West Side. Is it safe to say you grew up in a liberal household? (laughs) What else is there on the Upper West Side? Yeah, I was born in Manhattan. I went to B'nai Jeshurun for nursery school. Um, I actually moved to Westchester uh, for first grade. Uh, I went to kindergarten in PS84. I'm very proud to be a graduate of the New York City Public Schools, at least through the kindergarten level. Um, so, yeah, I was an Upper West Side liberal at the age of four. And how does one go from that to uh, being who you are today, who you were in the White House? Was it a, a strange transition? Did it morph over the years? Well, you can really start to, by thanking Jimmy Carter. I was uh, in college when Jimmy Carter was president, and I entered college a proud liberal Democrat. 1978. And I just started to think Jimmy Carter keeps apologizing for America around the world. He just seems weak. Then the Soviets invaded Afghanistan. And I thought Carter's response was was weak. And then along came Ronald Reagan. And I just fell in love with Reagan's patriotism, his optimism. You know, Jason, what, what people today don't understand about those who grew up in this era was no one cheered for America in the post-Vietnam, post-Watergate era. We didn't have flags flying on college campuses. They were all taken down. And the liberal Northeastern schools, it was a point of pride to take down the American flag. And when Reagan came along with that optimism and love of country, and after that Soviet hockey game, which was in Lake Placid, not far from where I was in college at Middlebury, Vermont, and people cheered USA, USA, USA. It was the first time in my life I heard people cheer for America. And it really resounded with me. It just resonated. And, and so I started to personally become conservative on a whole host of issues. And I graduated from Middlebury um, uh, and changed parties six months later. So that makes me the only person in the history of the state of Vermont to enter it a liberal and leave it a conservative. You ought to get an award, maybe. <laughs> how, how is it with your family? I know so many families have trouble sitting at the same table when they don't agree politically, and I think it's become worse than ever before. Um, is your family still liberal, and are you able to navigate the differences of opinion? And if so, what's your advice for families who can't seem to do that? Well, I'm proud to report that my parents have grown up. Um, <laughs> you know, when I was at the White House, uh, my parents were both ardent liberal Democrats. And I remember during the recount in Florida in 2000, after the election, my mother saying to me, now, Ari, you you know Al Gore won, don't you? Uh, 
but you know, a funny thing happened. My my father stayed pretty liberal Democrat, um, but my mother really has become a very conservative Republican. Uh, she loved listening to Rush. And, um, part of it, I think, was when she would see in the press the way liberals would criticize me, it really rankled her. And then my oldest brother went to Iraq, and he was a civilian in helping with the reconstruction of Iraq. And she would read columnists criticize him for doing something that he did entirely out of benevolence. And I think it really got to her. And she started to say, how are these people criticizing? You know, so I think that started to turn her. So she grew up. She's now a conservative Republican. Um, and, uh, you know, one of my brothers, he's a conservative Republican now. One is still a very liberal Democrat. Uh, and we just don't talk politics. When the three boys are together, we just don't talk politics. So that's the safest approach for families that are politically divided. Just focus on other things. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, for me, it rolls off my back. I really could care less. I have other more important things to talk about when I'm with family and loved ones and friends. I mean, I kind of like to keep my politics nine to five. Um, but, you know, some people are very sensitive about it. And it really, they don't know how to let it roll off their back. When you were younger, at what point did you say to yourself, if ever, I want to work at the White House, I want to be behind that podium? In some ways, never. In some ways, I always measured myself, could I do it? So I was working on Capitol Hill. I was a press secretary over my career, 17 years on Capitol Hill for three congressmen and one senator. And like any industry, you sort of start at the bottom and you work your way up. I started to work for more senior congressmen, a more senior senator, chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee when the Republicans took control of the Congress in 94. And when I was at Ways and Means, you know, I would watch Mike McCurry, who was the White House press secretary for Bill Clinton. And I would admire the job he was doing, you know, press secretary to press secretary. And I think this guy's good. Look how smooth he is. Look at his sense of humor, his command of issues. He's good. And I remember thinking to myself, I wonder if I could ever hold that job. Not that I wanted to hold it, but I wanted to measure myself and say, what can I learn from Mike watching him to apply to how I do my job now at Ways and Means? But could I ever do what Mike's doing at that podium? And I remember I said to myself one day, I think I could. But that didn't mean I ever thought I would. And then one day I got lucky. Um, you know, I'm a big believer that in Washington, if, if you try to reach the next platform, if you're so stridently, overtly ambitious, you're going to get nowhere. Because people like that, it's just too much. Good things happen to people who just do their current job and work hard. And I got a phone call from a friend of mine who was a consultant. He was uh, managing or consulting on Elizabeth Dole's presidential campaign. And I was kind of burned out and bored with working on Capitol Hill after 17 years. And he said, Dole needs a communications director. Do you want to interview? Um, I interviewed and she hired me. So I became communications director in 1999 for Elizabeth Dole's campaign, which went nowhere. She got eclipsed by Governor George W. Bush. And when the Dole campaign, when she dropped out, I thought, I'm done. I'm done with politics at long last. 18 years now in Washington. It's enough. And I'm going to look for a job in the private sector. But I got a call from Governor George W. Bush, from actually Karen Hughes on his behalf, asking me to meet with the governor and interview to become his press secretary on the campaign. And I thought, I don't want this. I really am done. But I like George Bush. I only met him once. 
there was something about the guy that just struck me. What a likable fellow, good guy. And I think he could win this thing. So I interviewed with him. And then I went off to Seattle to interview, have my final interview with Microsoft. I was in the running to become the person who would lead all their communications in Washington, D.C. And I had one other superb job in the private sector lined up. So I left Austin, went to Seattle, came back to Washington, and got offers from all three. And I thought to myself, I can make a mint with Microsoft. The other job offer was a firm called Gillespie Quinn. It would have been Gillespie Quinn Fleischer. I would have been a founding partner of a Washington firm. But I thought, I've got one more in me. I really like the governor. I'm moving to Texas. And I had one more in me. And I worked for George W. Bush. What did your mom say about that? You know, she understood it was kind of my chosen career. What she said that really got me one day is when, when Bush won, and he won, mom, um, <laughs> and I moved back to Washington from Texas and got ready to go into the White House. She said to me, you know, Ari, the White House is going to change you. And I said, no, it's not. She said, these jobs change you. And I knew it wasn't going to change me. And I think that's right. It didn't change me. It didn't change who I was, what was most important to me in life. And I think it's one of the reasons I love that job so much is I always had some level of detachment from it. I always had a little bit of an outsider in me. As much as I was an insider track and worked for establishment politicians, I always had something in me that beat to a bit of an outsider drum. I was able to take Washington seriously, but not that seriously. I always recognized that the foo-foo, fancy events that people would get invited to, I never got invited to anything, Jason. My position did. My title did. As soon as I left the White House, I knew I wasn't going to get invited to those fancy things anymore, which was perfectly fine with me. My life did not revolve around my job. My work life did because of the hours you have to put in. But who I was never did. And frankly, I think that's one of the things that allowed me to look at Donald Trump with somewhat of an objective eye, because I've always had enough outsider in me that I didn't fall for there's only one way to do things. It's the Washington way. It has to be done this way. It's the traditional route that's always been done. I always had the ability to say, what else is out there that can work? And that's how I try to approach my job. Yeah, I wish people would think about um, outside the box approaches, but it's very, very hard in this uh, in society today. Let's, um, let's jump to Afghanistan. Very rough, important topic today. A couple of days ago, you tweeted, I think, a very important tweet. Biden's performance now is so off the mark. Like Obama, Biden is creating a straw man. The issue isn't why we are leaving Afghanistan. The issue is why did we botch so badly how we're leaving Afghanistan? Give me your insight about, uh, again, not why we're leaving, but what happened here. Yeah, it's not why, it's how. You know, in October of 2001, when President Bush ordered the counterattack into Afghanistan, I never in my wildest dreams as his spokesman thought we'd be there 20 years later. So I do think there is merit to the case that we need to withdraw our troops. I, I would have been willing to listen to a president who made the case that it's like Germany or Japan and we need to stay there for decades. It's the right thing to do. I would have listened to that. I don't know if I would agree or not, but American presidents grew tired of making that case. So there was no one to make it. So if you accept the argument that we have to bring the troops home, then the only question is how? 
do you bring the troops home? And this has been an abysmal, embarrassing failure, Jason. The idea that the United States of America is now dependent on the, the, the tender mercies of the Taliban at checkpoints drives me crazy. This is not how America should be seen or operate. And this is the abandonment of Joe Biden. This is how he botched the withdrawal. And if you're going to withdraw, you better do it right. You better have a plan. There's plenty of history for bad withdrawals. Certainly, Vice President Biden saw that when he withdrew from Iraq, leading to, the, to ISIS's formation and taking over half the Middle East. So the question is, would, would President Trump's withdrawal be any better? And when you listen to President Trump and you see how he took out Soleimani from Iran, when you see how he destroyed ISIS, I think there's reason to believe that he actually would have done things in a muscular fashion to have protected our withdrawal properly and done it right. Uh, Joe Biden, it just struck me, said, cut and run. I'm done. I've been around a long time. I'm smarter than you guys. I've seen it all. Get out. Stop talking to me. Just get out. And he kind of washed his hands of it. And I think that starts to explain why things have gone so south so fast, so badly. Let's talk about President Biden's marketing of this. A couple of days before the withdrawal, he was very self-assured that none of these things were going to happen. The Taliban wouldn't get to Kabul and so on and so forth. And then, of course, we see this tremendous mess. As somebody who's been behind the scenes helping presidents and others prepare for the messaging, how does something like that happen? I know with President Trump, he's a, he had a mind of his own, and he would say what he wanted to say, although he was prepped by talented people. He's the president gets to say what he wants to say. Is that the same with President Biden, or do you think he just wasn't prepped properly? What What's your guess as to what happened? You know, I, I think that he failed to disclose everything he knew, and therefore tried to paint one picture in July of there's no way the Afghan military is not going to be able to handle this. They're 300,000 strong, the best trained, the best equipped. That's what he's told America in July. And then he tells George Stephanopoulos this week that he always knew it was going to be chaotic. Well, which is, if you always knew it was going to be chaotic, why didn't you tell the American people that in July? You know, one of the great lessons, and I think President Trump saw it with uh, COVID and didn't handle it right, is you have to say to the American people what realistic expectations they should hold. One of the highlights for President Trump was when in March or April, he said COVID could last till July or August. And at the time he said it, it was a blow to the system. It was a shock to hear people say back then that it could last that long. But you know what? People wanted to hear it. They wanted to know the truth, even if it was tough truth to handle. His poll numbers actually went up the more realistic he talked about COVID. When things didn't go well, it started to go down again. Same thing for Joe Biden. If he had said in July, there's a chance that this could be chaotic. Anytime you withdraw American troops, particularly in an area like Afghanistan, where there's a lawlessness, where there's a lack of government, things could go wrong. We're going to do everything we can to minimize it. But I'm telling you now, things can go wrong. He didn't do that in July. He painted an entirely different picture. And... It came back to bite him when we're watching these terrible humanitarian scenes that should break everybody's heart of people in despair trying to save their lives and save the lives of their families trying to get out. I, I marvel at the disparity in messaging. So I don't think President Biden handled the messaging right, not before the withdrawal, not during the withdrawal, and not on the Stephanopoulos interview. 
But I will say that I thought Jake Sullivan did a very good job last night, both in his remarks and in his Q&A. Why is there such a disparity between messaging? Meaning if they had done what Jake Sullivan did last night earlier on, where he was honest, you know, this is tough. These are tough decisions. These are complex problems. There are no easy answers. And, And the press is tough on him. But, you know, he had fair, honest answers, I think. Why isn't messaging coming out of any White House, for for that matter, that clear? You know, with Joe Biden, it really strikes me that he's got a level of easy exasperation that's hard to understand. He, he lashes out at people who ask realistic questions. And he doesn't lash out because they're biased questions or he doesn't like the reporter or there's been a hostility between them. He lashes out as in, how dare you question me? You hear that in his tone as if, why would you even ask me that? And he does it on a host of questions to a host of reporters. And again, I think the flaw here is he's been around too long. He thinks he knows it all, has seen it all. He's heard it all from the generals before, and he knows better than the generals. So it's just his way. And there's no other side to be argued. I think that's what Biden's doing. Now, as for Jake Sullivan, and and I want to get into something that's a little complicated and nuanced, but it's really important. The intelligence community. Jake is the receiver, probably the number one reader of information that comes out of intel from a variety of places, not just the CIA, but there are 17 or so intelligence sources that feed information to the White House, 17 government entities. National Security Advisor is supposed to be a very good reader of that information. One of the things the American people need to know about intel is it almost never reaches a conclusion. Intelligence is maddeningly vague. What they'll say to the president of the United States is, we think there's a strong likelihood of A. However, we also don't dismiss that B could happen. And Mr. President, we also want to point out to you, don't rule out X, Y, and Z. So what happens? They have now told the president five different things could happen. We assess a likelihood, a greater likelihood of A over B or X, Y, Z. But then events unfold. Events develop and they turn out one way or another. And then people in the intelligence agency start to leak. We warned him. We told him it could be Y. We told him it could be Z. And they don't say the nuanced part. We thought the likelihood was A or the likelihood was B. Or that we cover the map in all our analyses and take into account so many different scenarios that we really aren't very helpful because we didn't reach any hard, hard conclusions. But we've covered ourselves, haven't we? Because now we, we can tell you we did tell them that Y and Z could happen. It's maddening. People think it's like a TV show where the intelligence walks into the uh, intelligence officer walks into the White House and says, here's the proof. Here's the picture. Here's the eavesdropping, Mr. President. It's slam dunk. It's almost never that way. And when events go wrong, intel are the first to leak. You know, uh, it really drives the point home to me because having read so many intelligence reports and being a lawyer, so I could say this, I used to think, wow, this sounds like it was written by a bunch of lawyers because, you know, they have this opinion and that opinion and five other opinions. And it is often, um, you know, uh, it is very frustrating. And I don't fault them because ultimately, you know, their job is to provide the policymakers with all the information that they have. But I do think intelligence would be more useful if they... Um, give more of an opinion, more of a certainty as best as they possibly could. And I think you're right to point out that people don't realize how the system actually works. But it's the post-game leaking that drives me crazy. Yes. 
one thing to give policymakers your considered opinion that has nuance built into it and doubt built into it and other scenarios built into it. That's absolutely their job. But then when things go south and things go wrong, it drives me crazy that then, then, then they CYA cover their you know what by giving that unlikely scenario and presenting it as if we, we told everybody, we warned this could happen. And they all do it, of course, with anonymity. And newspapers, particularly the New York Times and Washington Post, love that anonymous source and puff it up to make it sound like this was the only thing presented. Well, the irony is, and I used to, when I used to talk to the press uh, and they would tell me things that they say other people leaked, I said, so you're going to tell me that a guy leaked something that he could be or she could be criminally charged for and you're going to take it at face value. And how trustworthy is that person, right? Right, right, right. Let's talk about a softer uh, kind of PR. So 74 countries, maybe over 74 countries, released a joint statement after the Taliban took over, calling on all parties to respect and facilitate the safe and orderly departure of foreign nationals and Afghans who wish to leave the country, asking for those in positions of power and authority to be accountable for the protection of human life. And then the very end of the statement, and this is the part I want to talk about, says, the Afghan people deserve to live in safety, security, and dignity. We in the international community stand ready to assist them. So obviously they deserve to live in safety, security, and dignity. But when they make this statement that we stand ready to, to assist them, we're working on getting people out and we're struggling. What does a statement like that actually mean? Why add that sentence when, in my view, it is so fake? This is what creates Donald Trump, isn't it? This is where the people in Washington who come out with these meaningless words, these perfect politicians who blew it and then put out statements like this, create an opening for an outsider to come along who just talks bluntly, calls bull bull, and lets it rip. This is why a tremendous amount of the American people have soured on Washington and were open to an outsider like Donald Trump with all his strengths and all his flaws. Um, yeah, I... This exhortation after we gave up our leverage is meaningless, but it's what the State Department and others excel in, and that's part of the problem. They live in a Western world where issuing moral-based statements has meaning, and there's something to respect about that, I suppose, but if you're on the ground and you're suffering, a piece of paper doesn't relieve your suffering. Action on the ground relieves your suffering, and action on the ground comes from leverage, and you get leverage by having military presence. That's what the fundamental flaw of Joe Biden did in Afghanistan was. He gave up the leverage by giving up the military presence, and therefore all we have now are pieces of paper. Last question on Afghanistan before we move on. I can't speak to somebody like you so close to the anniversary of 9-11 without asking your experience that day and that horrific day that changed the course of American history and world history. What was it like? What happened? Yeah, I mean, it was... Um, Obviously, as everybody already knows, the most peaceful beginning of a day, clear blue skies, great weather, a reading event at a local school in Sarasota, Florida, to focus on helping uh, minority children read and be successful in life. And everything changed. And what I'll always remember beyond the suffering and the, the human stories of the day standing next to the president on Air Force One as he was talking to the Secretary of Defense saying, we're at war. I mean, we've been attacked. 
And when you hear the commander-in-chief say to the Secretary of Defense, we're at war, you recognize how this world is about to change, how America is about to change, what's about to be unleashed. And one thing to this day that really rankles me or bothers me is people say that we, United States, George Bush, invaded Afghanistan. We didn't invade Afghanistan. We counterattacked those who attacked us. No invasion. We brought justice to those who attacked our country. But hearing the words, we're at war, really sent a chill down my spine that day. I want to talk about social media, Twitter in particular. You have uh, President Trump banned from Twitter and other social media platforms, yet the Taliban and uh, leaders of Iran, the Iranian regime... Hamas, other terrorist murderers, thugs get to use these social media platforms. Who's minding the shop? Why, you know, how do we live in a society where politics rules or whatever it is? What are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, on the one hand, it's the private sector. So the libertarian side of me says fools get to make rules. And if these private companies are run by fools, it is their company. They, they get to make those rules. Look, you know, this this stuff is only successful up to a point when half the country basically rolls its eyes and says, you guys are just so in the tank and so biased, you start to lose value. And that ultimately is happening with these social media companies. Um, I, I think the greatest future event that's going to show this is you know, doing it to Donald Trump after January 6th. I can understand how there could be an element in the country who says, thank God. Yeah, glad they did it. But I'll predict to you, they're going to do similar things to Ted Cruz or Tom Cotton or Ron DeSantis. Basically, you name any of the next generation of Republican leaders, the power that they have to censor political views and to shape or or put their thumb on the scale to shape a Democrat liberal environment is what they're going to do again. They did the Trump first. He made himself an easier target. But when they start to make this their way of life, I, I just think the gig is up. The gig is up already for so many Americans on, on these companies, and it's going to get worse, I'm afraid. Let's address the topic of fake news, which has been discussed ad nauseum. I'm not sure it's fixable. It's driven by so many factors, agenda-driven, leakers, leakers who shouldn't be leaking, leakers who lie because they have their own agenda, <laughs> so many reasons, right? I have six kids, and I guide them how to consume news. Um what do you say, how should people consume news so that they actually get what they need to know and beyond the headlines, beyond the sound bites, beyond the agendas, obviously they should listen to this podcast, but beyond, beyond listening to this podcast, what is your advice to somebody to understand what's happening in the world today? Listen to their father. That's my advice <laughs> to your kids. Um, you know, I miss the days where you could read one thing or watch one thing and have a pretty good take on all the world's events and all the news. And it would take you 15 minutes or maybe half an hour to watch the evening news. There was an era, it was still kind of liberal, but at least they tried to be balanced in how they presented information. And for decades, they've been losing our trust. That's why Fox News was able to make such a powerful launch because the mainstream media carved themselves out in the lives of tens of millions of Americans because they went too liberal. So what I do, and I have to work hard at it and put a lot of time into it, is uh, I read a lot and I watch a lot. So I will watch CNN in the morning 
and then I'll watch Fox for the rest of the day. I want to hear multiple sides. I read a tremendous amount of stuff, including the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, um, the Washington Post, and then endless columnists. And of course, because of my background and my experience, I'm able to kind of filter a lot of this stuff and then determine what it is that I believe or what I want to say. But if you're an average person who just wants to pay a little bit of attention, frankly, and people will think this is a plug because I'm a Fox News contributor, but the six o'clock evening show on Fox with Brett Bear, I think, is the best show on TV. It's, it's one hour long, so there's plenty of depth. You don't get the short, quick reporting. You have more time. And it really gets into all issues, and it does so from a very fair point of view. Uh, it's real reporters. It's not their opinion shows. I like the opinion shows, but I make the distinction between those opinion shows and uh, news, hard news show. And I, I think it's the best news show on TV. Great advice. On the weekend of August 8th, a fan reportedly called an MLB player a racial slur. Not 24 hours later, the team concluded he was just calling out the name of the team's mascot. So on August 10th, you tweeted a, a superb thread here, especially the part about waiting 24 hours to learn the facts before rage tweeting. Social media clearly is part of this pernicious problem. What's your advice to people about both um, consuming social media, but also using social media to spread, as in this case, something that's just absolutely false and sent so many people off in the wrong direction. And it, it was just like what happened to uh, Nicholas Sandman, the Covington Catholic high school kid on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial wearing a MAGA hat, where all the press blamed him instantly for that little run-in that was had with a, with a Native American who was on the steps. Uh, the press just lunges left, don't they? at the first instance, the first blush, the first reporting, it's student body left, condemn the right. You know, what I do is when I hear these things, I typically wait 24 hours. I wait to see how the news unfolds, how it develops. I wait for people on the record to start commenting. I just don't take it at face value anymore. And if I were a reporter, I would be in distress about that. I'd be in distress that when I report something as a reporter to somebody, People can't just accept it. Why? Because there's the, the media business has turned into a commentary business. It stopped making its money on actually reporting facts and news. And it started to shift so much into commentary. And that commentary comes from the left. It comes from a biased point of view. It accelerated under Donald Trump because they felt a need to counterbalance, to correct, to fight Donald Trump which made them lose even more credibility for half the country. And the media is in terrible condition right now. They're, they're really not trusted. Every single poll you look at from Pew to Gallup, every independent pollster will show that the majority of the American people do not trust the media to tell the news uh, fully, fairly, and accurately, which is the essence of their job. And what you were just referred to, what I believe was the Cleveland Indians game, and there was a fan who yelled the word dinger. That was the name of the Indians mascot. That's also a word for home run. You hit a dinger. And somebody thought he used a pejorative word to describe African-Americans. The batter at the plate at the time was, was black. And it instantly turned into a racist incident. But all they had to do was wait, watch the tape, listen to the audio, slow down. And clearly he was calling the Indians mascot by the mascot's name a pseudonym for another name for a home run. 
it's just such an accurate, wrong, biased reporting that makes people lose their faith that we have a media we can rely on anymore. I want to go back to the international arena again, just for a few minutes. Uh, we've seen Iranian protests over time. We now see a president who was a murderer of about 30,000 Iranians back in the late 80s. Uh, how long do you think this regime in Iran can last? I wish it were over yesterday. You know, when, when you look at how young Iranians are, there's a similarity with Afghanis. But you look at how young they are, how Western-oriented Iran, Persia, has always been. You have to wonder how long this theocratic regime can hang on. Now, unlike what's happening in Afghanistan, the theocracy in Iran has put its thumb on the Iranian people now since 1978. That's when the Ayatollah uh, took Iran. There's such a widespread frustration there. And this, again, is where Donald Trump, with his blunt ways, deserves credit. What was his reaction? Maximum sanctions on Iran. Put the squeeze on Iran. Put the pressure on Iran. Make it really hard on the Iranian government so the government collapses. And then have faith that a better government will, rep will come about that represents the people. Uh, Biden is starting to weaken that. He's already backed off several other sanctions. The George Bush part of me says that freedom always wins. The another side of me says sometimes thugs can crush freedom. And we're going to watch it play out in Iran, aren't we? It's been playing out. And you can just hope and pray that the young people in Iran are able to take control of their future. The world will be so much safer, so much better uh, without that theocratic government in Iran. But this also is what led to the Abraham Accords, isn't it? And you know better than anybody. It was the realization of Sunni Muslims, particularly in Saudi Arabia, um, the United Arab Emirates, Kuwait, Morocco, Jordan, who recognized that the greatest threat to the region is Iran and the Shiite government and the trouble they're stirring up with Hezbollah and in Syria and with Lebanon and Hamas. And what did they do? They formed an alliance with Israel. What a beautiful, beautiful breakthrough. And I think I'll, I'll never stop being grateful to President Trump for helping make that happen. Uh, but this is clearly a reaction against Iran that Israel and the Sunnis have joined forces to do something about. And that's led to peace in a very volatile part of the world for the Israelis and those Sunni nations. Indeed. And when, when you talk about the young people of Iran, do you think there's potential for the international community, perhaps the diaspora community, the Iranian diaspora community to help these young people? Or is it just too much of a closed society, impossible to get in and help? People are too fearful. You know, the problem with diaspora communities is once the diaspora takes root long enough, they become very successful in their new countries. And why they will always have emotional and sometimes strong ties to the old place. They're now Americans. The L.A. Persian community is very big, very powerful. But they're Americans. I don't know. And one of the lessons from Iraq, where we thought there'd be an Iraqi in diaspora that would have Western values and would want to return to Iraq and help rebuild the Iraqi government. There weren't as many as we believed to be. The number who wanted to return wasn't as high as we thought it would be, and their influence was less than we thought it would be. So I'm a little more optimistic about the Persian community because it's larger in number, 
And I do think that Persian ties run very deep. But I think you have to be realistic. This has to come from within Iran. It has to be local. It has to be native. It has to be homegrown if it's going to be lasting. The exile community can play a role, but I'm realistic and I'm a bit guarded about how influential role it can be based on what I saw in Iraq. Last question, Ari, bringing it back home. Are we doomed to be as politically divided now as we are with maybe even uh, more and more division? Or do you sense that perhaps the pendulum will swing in the other direction when people get fed up about the division? You know, if you look at our history, we've always been a pendulum swinging nation where we don't swing that far in either direction. And we kind of do stay somewhat close to a center, a middle with some levels of swings there. You know, Europe has communist parties. It has Nazi, neo-Nazi parties. We don't have that in America. You know, we have the Democrat Socialists of America who are puny and weak. Uh, although they do have six congressmen now. Um, and, and we have some real fringe conservative movements, but we essentially are a pretty moderate nation where the pendulum doesn't swing like it does in other countries. Having been there on September 11th and woken up on September 12th to an incredibly unified country, I know that this country can unify again. Uh, Our domestic politics, our economic politics, immigration politics can divide us, but we're fundamentally one people, one nation when we're challenged. It's a shame it took a war, an attack on our country to bring that about. But I I do believe in that pendulum. I think we're going through a rough age, uh, a partisan era. But you have enough partisan breakdowns where nothing gets done, no laws get enacted. People start to demand action. This is where Joe Biden really has missed the mark. He had a chance. When Joe Biden was inaugurated, he said his whole soul was for unity. And he had a 50-50 Senate and a three-vote majority in the House. If he had really governed from the center, if he had formed coalitions of both parties, I think he could have been a remarkably successful president. But he chose instead to see if he could govern from the far progressive left. And we don't know the end of that story. We don't know if he's going to have the votes to pass the leftist agenda. But I do believe that things resettle and we are a fundamentally reasonable, balanced country. And these partisan extremes we're going through now will eventually pass. Well, I hope you use your reasonable, balanced voice to uh, recenter us, recenter, and you know, hold that pendulum where it ought to be. And I really, really thank you for your time, for sharing your thoughts and your wisdom, Ari. It was great to have you as a guest. Thanks, Jason. It's great to be with you. You're good at this podcast stuff. <laughs> thank you so much. Take care. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ari Fleischer, press secretary for President George W. Bush, from January 2001 to July 2003. Ari had deep experience in the White House and was able to answer my questions using his deep experience at the White House as press secretary, as a person who reviewed and used intelligence and watched principals and policymakers review and use intelligence that is produced by the intelligence community. He was able to give his insight on Iran, Afghanistan, his personal experiences on September 11th, He was able to give some really useful advice on how to talk politics with one's family or friends if they don't agree with you, and also importantly, how to consume news today in the age of fake news. I hope you enjoyed the show, and please do share it with your friends and family. You can listen to The Diplomat on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are heard. I'm Jason Greenblatt. This is The Diplomat. 
brought to you by Newsweek.